And so what I what I realized was like I can't make the game have a better frame rate. No, you know not what I mean. Not when players are in control of it. Certainly not. <laughs> Scotch. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 390 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the webs programmer. I'm Sam and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is November 17th, 2020 U. Before we get started, we have a warning. There's going to be swears and profanes all over the place on this show. Uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Thank you very much for your recurring donations to help us keep our mic juices going. Oh, man, yeah. we made it straight through, straight through that intro. We did. By the inside of my mouth. That's how we but did it. What you said, blood is, blood is pouring out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's just spitting blood. <laughs> when you said profane, for some reason in my brain, I like, that like, I had immediately connected to, that probably was this Yeah, one. I got to throw you guys. Oh, oh! Which then reminded me of back in our in our younger days when we played paintball. Uh, Seth bought a paintball gun that used propane to power itself. It was, was a that? shotgun, I, wasn't it? Yeah, I still it have it. No, it's, it's not a, a shot. It's a, it's a pump. It's a, it's what's called the Tipman C three. Yep. It's a pump action, so it feels like a shotgun. It's a pump action propane powered paintball gun. It's a <laughs> It's good they have this pop filter on here. Oh, oh boy. I loved that paintball gun. I mean, it you know, it obviously doesn't compete against the fully automatic 30 shots per second, uh, you know, military-grade mm-hmm. hardware that people tend to bring to casual matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was, it was pump action, so you can only shoot like one or two shots per second, you know, depending on how fast you can pump it. But it was... So okay, for starters, it worked in the cold. That was the it worked the in all temperatures because yeah. it it actually had a combustion chamber in it, and then it had like a little like spark. So it's it had a, a it was a real gun. Yeah, yeah, it had a nine volt battery, and then it had a thing in there, kind of like a grill igniter, where it would like shoot a little spark in there. So when you pumped it, what the pump did was it would it would uh, open up a little like plunger where it would pull some propane, like allow some propane into the chamber, and then it would also oxidize, like mix in oxygen with the pump. And then you'd, you'd shoot it. it. had a satisfying sound because unlike a normal paintball gun where it just has like air pressure, this one actually had an explosion inside of it. So it sounded yeah. – it was pretty loud. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was awesome. And you could get 50,000 shots to a propane tank. Which is very efficient. Like a, I think that's a million dollars of paintballs, I think, something like Basically. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a question about categorization though. Um mm. Because when you started describing it, all I'm thinking is this is a spud gun, right? Because a spud gun works on the same principle. Yeah. yeah. A potato cannon, whatever. I, I think depending on where you are, people have different names for it. But, you know, it's, it's the thing. You just take PVC pipe, stick a lighter in the back, sh- shoot some hairspray in there, and mm-hmm. stick a potato in the top, and boom, you boom. got a cannon, right? Make sure your mom's not standing behind it in case you didn't in secure case it the lid of it. And yep. It explodes. And piece of it. it turns yeah. out that's the kind of thing that can happen, you know? Um, we've heard. We've heard from other people. People. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so like, so this is a, this is a gas-powered propellant, right? Because like, when I think of a gun, right, it's like it's got a bullet, and a bullet's got explosive material in it, but it's a solid explosive material, right? So you like, mm-hmm. you hit it with a pin, it starts it on fire, and it, it explodes, and, and then it creates the gas that shoots out. Yeah. Then you got a spud gun where you shoot an aerosolized or gaseous thing into it. 
Mm-hmm. And now it's already gas, and you light out a fire, and it's just, you know, now a bigger gas because it's exploded. Yeah. So that category of thing where you're using gas first as your propellant, mm. is that only spud guns? Mm. Like, right? I don't know. It, it, what else it feels almost besides this, yeah. this paintball gun? And potato where, where it's still it's still using an explosion, yeah, but it's right, using right. just it's using gas, yeah, instead of a solid igniter. I don't know because even even rockets don't do that. Like either no. they use solid or liquid rocket fuel. They yep. don't they don't just have like a big gas tank, you know, yep. that they use. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I guess I guess though because like internal combustion engines use the fumes from gasoline to yeah. ignite. So is a potato cannon just an engine? I think it's just Whoa. a car. It's a, yeah. it it's a, a car. one cylinder. You got a, a one, one cylinder, cylinder <laughs> potato cannon. One, <laughs> one potato cylinder power. out of the end. Right. So it's sort of like a it's like a uncapped single is it, you call it a single stroke engine? No, it's stroke yeah. something else, right? Stroke is the single piston. Stroke is the the is spinny the, thing, right? The whirly gig. And then I the, sure. the piston is the thing that Me neither. does stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so I think a spud gun is actually just a single piston combustion engine, mm-hmm. and then so is this paintball gun. Yep, yep, yeah. Huh. But yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great paintball gun. They they discontinued it because people wouldn't buy it because they were afraid of it because they're like, it'll explode. What if it explodes? Yeah, which it never did. You know, like it never that is not something that ever happened. I mean, those uh, same people probably had you know a propane tank hooked up to their. Or a giant grill. compressed air tank, which is what we had, which was more yeah, dangerous. Or they hop in their car and drive around town with a bunch of gasoline in the back. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just, we're all, you know. Yeah, with like you, a you gotta, four to six cylinder engine right yeah. in the front of the car. Yeah. That's four when to six times more dangerous than a single a single piston engine. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cars are just powered by continuous thousands of explosions, but nobody yeah. seems to worry about that, you know. Honestly, so you got you got to pick world. your phobias. You know, the sun is just a continuous explosion, and and then here we are riding around these explosions to get. From but the sun the has zero pistons, though. That's yeah. true. In terms of so, I think, so I think the moral it have is because it's a sphere and there's no cap on any of it. Well, it's gonna. Is run that why the sun point. is so powerful? Because it's an infinite piston combustion engine. I think I think you're right. That has to be it. Infinite pistons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, could be. I don't know, but, but we might be getting off track because we got to focus here on the Tipman C3, which ultimately <laughs> was a great gun, but uh, it got did dirty by people's fear of explosions. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, listen, guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We got to talk about, we got to talk about, so for starters, uh, real quick, Musk Watch. Because, you know, we got to we gotta close the loop on the saga from last week. <laughs> I don't know if there's any closing this loop, yeah, to be no, honest. Yeah, there's no closing it. Well, I just want to say a couple things. One is, last week we had talked about how the the uh, $8 verification mm-hmm. thing, um, that literally only lasted for 24 hours, and then they shut it down because <laughs> it caused so many problems. Uh, so that was great. And then since then, um, we've gotten updates where Elon has been emailing the employees, basically telling them that they better be hardcore or else, uh, and using those terms exactly, like that they have to become hardcore and work harder and longer hours than ever before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he even sent out an email saying, saying, click this link if you agree to be hardcore, and if not, then you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, so you know the, the the saga continues. It's been endlessly entertaining to watch this this guy just kind of bumble about and flop around 
uh, arguing with his engineers publicly on Twitter about the code that they wrote uh, and then firing them publicly when they correct him about the code that they wrote. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, oh, it's been great. It's sort of just a really good case study in how not to manage, you know? So uh, hopefully it's providing a free education for everybody worldwide. How to not... do just everything. Anything. Just anything. I think yeah, there, there, yeah, there's a couple good ways to learn, right? One is you learn by example and you follow in somebody's, you know, footsteps, right? Another is you lead by or you follow you or I guess you do it by counterexample where you take mm-hmm. some thing and you're like, well, if I just do the opposite of that, that's probably gonna be good. Right. Yeah, I'll probably right? things will work out yeah, pretty good. So I think if you kind of like look at Elon Musk's whole thing, if you just do the opposite of just literally everything that he does, mm-hmm. like you're probably going to be just an outstanding person. You won't be a billionaire, though. No, that's true. You know? <laughs> yeah, you won't be evil enough to become a billionaire, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's been, you know, just a fun and ongoing thing to to watch. Yeah, not uh, for the employees of Twitter, of course, which has been, I'm sure. I feel like some of them are kind of having nightmare. fun with it, though, because apparently tech tech jobs are still in extremely high demand. And many of them are just hopping straight from Twitter, going to other places. And I don't some think of them that's are- true for the bulk of the employees, though, because Facebook also laid off eleven thousand people. That's us, yeah. Facebook, and and Amazon, Amazon just in a, Amazon was on a hiring freeze, and now they just announced they're going to be laying off people. Although that might be from Amazon property. Oh, but there, but there are so many other companies out there looking for good engineers. You know, so, I mean, there there are, but yeah, there's, the, but the there's also is- a, a big like. Since everyone got fired at once, there's now a lot of competition. Yeah, 30,000 of them entering the market at the same time. And like, and people have, and it's not that easy, right? Because people have to move and all kinds of things. So it's, uh, there's, there's no, there's no reason to downplay the trauma. I think what you're saying is. Elon is causing to everybody. Is that, uh, you know, we feel for the people of Twitter, even yep. if the reality show of Elon Musk on Twitter is very yep. good popcorn material. You know, you exactly. can do both. It's fine. Yep. Yeah. Both both things can be true. Both things, yeah, both things can be and are true. Uh, all right, now let's talk about uh, some news that just dropped. I think it was yesterday, which is, is kind of interesting and, and has something to do with some of our our own experiences. Mm-hmm. This is about China mm-hmm. and video games in China. Uh, so Blizzard, so the creators of StarCraft, Warcraft, Diablo, Overwatch, uh, Hearthstone. Heroes of the Storm, lots of games, lots of franchises. They have been operating in China for about 14 years. Um, and I think I think they've had all of their properties operating in China. Um, and also worth noting, these are all live service games. So all their games are online. Like they need to be running servers and all this other stuff. Um, so when we brought Crashlands into China, we found that it was bureaucratic to say and the that least. that was in 2017. We started working on it in 2016. Yeah. Right? It took like eight months to get Did to the process. Did we get it out in 2016, like end of 2016, or was it the next year? I can't remember. Was that? When did we actually, because yeah, it took like nine months or something mm-hmm. from start to finish, but I can't remember if we actually launched in, in 2016 yeah, I think it was 2017. or 2016. I think it was, yeah. I think it was November 2017 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the the big issues with releasing a game in China, well, there's there's two. I say there's there's two primary issues. One is that you yourself cannot do that. Uh, you need to have a Chinese company intermediary who basically operates on your behalf, um, and so they will be your publisher there, and they will uh, manage all the revenues and stuff, and then they'll they'll basically pay you royalties 
know, back. Yeah, which isn't um, the same as like working with Steam. It's like if you had to have a middleman between you and Steam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and so so we that's that's a challenge. And, and there there are only a few companies in China that are authorized by the Chinese government to be these these middlemen in the games space. Um, so. We worked with uh, Tencent to get Crashlands released in China. Uh, Blizzard worked with NetEase to get their properties released. And so they had an ongoing relationship for 14 years to to uh, have their, their games be sellable and operable in China. Um, the, the second big challenge is the sort of the, the Great Firewall, as it's often referred to, which is that the Chinese government has a lot of rules and restrictions about um, – ownership of data and flow of data, but just as it relates to moving between China and other countries, right? And so what they will typically demand is that if you're a company like Blizzard, you know, and you want to operate, say, like World of Warcraft, uh, the Chinese players can't play with players from other countries. They have to have their own servers operating in China and the players play on those servers. Um, big part of that is because the Chinese government is oftentimes setting lots of laws and regulations about what people can do online. And so they want to make sure that they're controlling both ends of the internet connection, right? Mm-hmm. So like the, the, the home or the internet cafe where the game is being played is in China and the server is in China and therefore the government can spy on everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's both basically the and both ends. Yep. Yeah, that's basically the the gist of it. And then the final piece is the the cultural stuff, which is the Chinese government is very strict on what people are allowed to say and and depict and see and read and whatever. Right? It's not a free speech kind of a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the censorship is incredible. Just like the amount of censorship is just off the charts. And so they, the Chinese government will screen everything that gets released to the public um, and they will demand changes to it if it doesn't meet whatever it is that their current guidelines are. So in some cases that means like, um, I know that, that in World of Warcraft, undead characters uh, had like visible bones sticking out of their bodies, but in China, that's not that wasn't allowed because you weren't allowed to depict anything that could that could indicate so, something about death, right? Human remains, um, or like that, I think, right? yeah. So you can't have like skulls and bones and you know any of that stuff. And so they had to make a different character models to cover up those bones and stuff like that. So yeah, these are not it's small, just a small it's not small tweaks like, hey, could you guys swear less? It's like blood must now be some other substance entirely. Character models must now be redone. Stories oftentimes have to be sort of sanitized. Uh and not because of again, not because of the language used, but because of the thematic content uh present mm-hmm. in it. Which is much harder to you know on a production side to uh, casually do. Um kind of typically requires top to bottom changes across the whole game system. And then now essentially what you know Blizzard ended up having to do is running two weirdly kind of parallel versions of the title or uh, creating content that sort of uh, ahead of time tries to take, keep in mind the various cultural restrictions and then not develop content that just broadly for, for game, for the game you know, in the States too, that would end up having to require so much rework downstream um so it's it's a lot the censorship sort of gets into the game in the long run if the more people depended on uh, yeah which is which is already this like you know big nest of of 
problems and ethical questions. All this kind of it's stuff, interesting. Right? Yeah. But it gets topped off, though, by the fact that that it can change on a whim and instantly, right? Yes, as it has. So, <laughs> as it has. And, like, that was something that we, you know, had to deal with where all of a sudden we were just told, oh, hey, now you have to – because, like, one of the things that happened to us with Crashlands in China was um, – was I think it was in like 2018, I want to say maybe 2019, mm-hmm. um, the government mandated basically like sc- limits on screen time for people under a certain age, right? And so the way that they did that was that they had like every company who was selling games to people had to implement an API that would basically like watch, Check your, in. watch your screen time and then at a certain point basically like not let you play anymore or like not, I can't remember what the like outcome was and like pop up a message and whatever. Right. And so, and so like all of a sudden our Tencent people reached out and they're like, Oh, Hey, we need you to like integrate this or update the SDK in Crashland so that, and hook this thing up so that it like does this. And like the Basically. Fun, yeah. So, you know, so your game that? can, can check in with the government servers and then lock users out once the government says they can't play anymore. It's <laughs> yeah, like, wild. Oh, what a wild thing to have to implement into yeah. your game, you know? Uh, so, so it's, it's very costly to bring a game into China and to continue to operate it in that kind of an uncertain, you know, turbulent environment. Um, it's also uncertain at the front. Like really, it's actually not certain. It's actually it's almost certain you can't get a game into China anymore because because yeah. basically you you have to actually get like a license to distribute your game, which as as Seth said earlier goes through a, a Chinese company intermediary, right? And so they basically get a license on your behalf um, for your game on a particular platform or whatever, and that has to go through a government review process. Um, and I think the latest numbers for um, so back back when we launched Crashlands, this wasn't really happening yet. Like everything was still hard, but like it was actually like if you got that intermediary, you had you had a decent connection. Then like it would take about you six could months, get a game actually. out. Yeah, yeah, it was hard, but most of it was like meeting all the requirements and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then they implemented this like licensing system where they could then just decide how many games the government was going to let through from like outside of China, right? And I believe, unless I'm not horribly mistaken, that last year it was like one game. Yeah, it was not. A lot. Like literally <laughs> they, they, they basically just stopped allowing <laughs> yeah. foreign yeah. games. Yeah. yeah. And so so then just yesterday, um, there was an announcement that Blizzard and NetEase failed to come to an agreement to renew their, their license to distribute games in China. Um, and so as of January 23, all of Blizzard's games will no longer function in China. So, mm-hmm. so they, you know, they've got hundreds of thousands of WoW subscribers. They've got StarCraft players, Diablo players, like millions of players. Um, but NetEase basically released a statement saying, like, it's just not worth the cost because you know NetEase is a, is a is a middle operator here. So they're just they're just kind of skimming mm-hmm. marginally off of what Blizzard is making. And they said that um, you know the the full on revenue from the Blizzard games is only single digit percentages of NetEase's overall revenue, anyways. Um, and the extra burden of trying to deal with all of the all compliance. this compliance oh, yeah. stuff is just too much. And they would rather not worry about that and instead just focus internally on developing their own yeah. IP. I mean, having been is, on this side of trying to like you know manage that like. We, yeah, we decided we would. We're like, okay, never again unless that situation changes somehow. It's only gotten worse since then, but like that—that that was the yeah. idea, right? But yeah, I, I imagine being because like every time we've talked to 
Um, so like all, all the, the events we you know used to go to in the pre-COVID days, we would meet with people from Tencent and from uh, some smaller publishers and stuff in China, right, um, to talk about our future games and stuff. And I remember in the earlier day, like in the Crashlands days, for like the couple years around there, it was actually, it was like really fun and exciting because like there were so many Chinese publishers all of a sudden and they were like trying to get games in their portfolios and like there was this vibe that like, oh, this market is like opening up it's, and it's everybody was excited about it on, on, on all sides of, or everywhere across the world, you know? And then once that sort of crackdown started to happen, like, and, and at first we were, we would still continue talking to these publishers. They still had like this kind of hopefulness where they were like, oh, we're pretty sure we can get these things through. We still have good, you know, connections to yeah. government stuff, right? And then over the years, it just like turned into this kind of, uh, this kind of like depressing. You could feel vibe, their frustration you know? through this. Yeah, yeah. where you'd like interact with it because we still had publishers reaching out even a, even a year or two ago for mm-hmm. like Crashlands in, in China, like Crashlands Mobile and stuff. And we would get the discussions going, and each time I'd be like, this isn't going to happen because it takes too long. They're not letting the games in. And by the time we actually came to a deal, the likelihood that the government changes something is almost 100%, you know. Mm-hmm. But they were still hopeful enough that they would, like, try to make something happen. And inevitably, something would change after the first few months of, like, slow back and forth, you know. And then they're just gone. They're just evaporate, you know, right? The, the, and the whole chat is gone. And it seems to be what happened just across the board is that this kind of, like, hopefulness about this uh, – this kind of connection between between like the Chinese games market and the rest of the world seemed to be this like really great kind of meeting point, you know, and then just evaporated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, wild. you know, as far as Blizzard is concerned, I think I think the Chinese market at the peak was something like twelve percent or fourteen percent of their overall worldwide mm-hmm. revenue. So, like, yep. I don't know what what that represents now. This was maybe like three or four years ago, back when I saw that figure. Um, so I don't know how big of a hit this is for them, but I think, you know, it just, it, it sucks for so many of the players who, who have built up friend groups and stuff and like built hobbies around playing these games consistently. Um, there's, there's very likely like streamers who play these games in China and make Mm -hmm. a living off of, off of that. So there's, there's an entire ecosystem like for games that are hobby games, like the ones that Blizzard makes and that are have been around for that long, there's a lot of people who uh, are going to have to find something else to do, yeah. you know, um, try to bring their friend groups into other games or whatever. And like something that that has always been really interesting is so as a as a WoW player, I like to look at there's a website called Warcraft Logs where you can look at just like reports of people who have done boss fights or whatever. And it's like a full aggregated data dump of everything that they did. Right. And, and the Chinese players are always doing weird, interesting stuff that nobody else is doing. And, and I, I feel like we're going to be losing something like in the wow community, because what you would always see is like in the European area and like in North America, People would agree on like, oh yeah, this is like the best strategy. This is how this is the best way to beat this boss or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then some Chinese players would show up and they would do something completely different that mm-hmm. made no sense at the time. And they would beat the boss way faster or like mm-hmm. way better. And everybody would be looking at it like, what the fuck is this? Right. Yeah. And then if you really dig into it, they would always think they would have found some kind of weird trick, you know, mm-hmm. that nobody had really thought of. And it's because, like, you know, culturally, uh, p- 
people have different ways of thinking about things, right? Like different lenses through which to, to view stuff. And I think, you know, just you could, you could see that play out in how people played the game. Um, and it sucks because we're like, that's good. That's going away. Yeah. Right. Losing like, we're cult, not, a cultural player base as opposed to just like a, yeah. yeah. It's always the problem of isolation and homogeny, yeah. right? Is, is that. You don't bring in any new interesting yeah, perspectives, you, new. you know? Yeah. So uh, that's going to be an interesting, uh, you know, thing to to kind of watch unfold. It's it's not clear whether or not they're, Blizzard is going to pursue a new publishing partner. And and if they did, you know, would they be the the one game, the one company that gets a new license in 2023? Or will mm-hmm. just no new companies get allowed in? I don't know. Uh but yeah, all this all this stuff has definitely sort of pushed us out of the idea of like probably not going to be pursuing anything in China oh, in yeah. the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that, just yeah. it's that's it's so much work. a lot, and I, I don't see that happening anytime. Yeah, and and we've kind of gotten past the idea of of changing our games to meet some kind of a censorship requirement when the intent of the censorship is to you know try to ensure that the public doesn't have any anti-authority or you know tendencies or like that's that's messed up that feels gross yeah and we're we're not we don't want to be involved in that (laughs) uh yeah so all right you guys want to get to some questions all right uh these questions come from podcast.bscotch.net highest upvoted question comes from fraser who says questions two sounds really ambitious have you run into any performance limitations working in game maker that you can't optimize your way out of Anything that's impacted the design? Hmm. Well, I think let's talk about the ambitious note first because, uh, like we should discuss this, we had a pizza party last Friday, you know. Yeah. You got management, it. Management was very uh, enjoying everybody's work. So, so everybody got a pizza. That's sort of, you know, it, it was a joke <laughs> that we turned into a real thing basically at the studio every quarter. Or so we have a pizza party, everybody plays video games for the afternoon, just kind of hangs out. So one of the things we talked about was how in the last six months or so with Game Changer, with uh, Jen on the narrative side, the game's overall kind of core content development has started just kind of very rapidly exploding in terms of how quickly we're putting all the stuff together. And on the ambition front, when we had set out to make the game back in, I guess, 2021, January, kind of officially, um, with the overall scope of what we wanted to do, the amount of kind of systemic interactivity between the different things that are in the world and and the player and the stories you wanted to tell, all that stuff, we knew that we literally could not build it, which is weird because like I mean that was the way it was sort of with the first one too, right? It was very much a uh, and with level head. There's always some piece of it I feel like that we're like we don't know we don't know how to do that exactly but I think with Crashlands 2 it was very much a from the bottom up thing where we were changing how the art was done we knew we were going to have to change how content was developed um kind of everything um so the level of ambition of the project then um was so high that the freaky thing the first year and a, some change working on it by a year and a, you know half almost was that we couldn't quite tell Actually, if we were going to be able to do it, right? You're developing all these tools and pipelines and stuff and slowly developing content, slowly developing parts of the game. 
Um, but the whole time kind of with, with a lack of clarity as far as like, okay, is this actually enough to be able to do what we're really setting out to do here? And I think it's only in the last couple of months that that's like really kicked off probably since midsummer or so. Um, and so with that, there's been, there's been tons of, of kind of optimization related things or even just production related things that have been, you know, intensely challenging about getting the thing to work. And then on the game maker side, uh, we've had to, I mean, We've developed stuff built like a UI engine thing called Cake Frames, um, which then you know allowed us to and made us made it possible for us to build UIs very very quickly and much more easily. Which of course means that there's more of them, which meant that suddenly that again optimization problems start showing up. As soon as you make something easy, then you you run into this this Jevons paradox problem as we talk about in the podcast somewhat frequently, which is that as soon as it's easy to do something, you get a lot of it, right? And the whole point of Crashness development has been we need to make everything easy to do. Because we need a lot of just about everything, uh, and we need these bottlenecks relieved. And so I think most of our optimization woes have come down to new places where that uh, that volume of stuff is showing up, or where these completely new things that we're doing with with for us with like with shaders, with uh, you know just how many things are on screen at a time, all sorts of things like that um, have been new enough that we don't have tools or kind of optimization pathways just kind of out of the gate on already yeah so. and this is the, the Jevons paradox is is real I mean it's 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 always there and this is this is that idea that just to remind if our listeners don't know mm-hmm. the Jevons paradox it's the idea that you can never reduce the usage of a system by making it more efficient you will only increase the usage so it's the idea of of saying oh wow there's a lot of traffic congestion downtown let's add three lanes. And then you add three lanes, and then within a month, your commute takes just as long as it did before. Because uh, when there's more lanes, more people, either more people start driving or more people take that route to the point where, like, once that route goes back to being as slow as it was before, then maybe they'll start considering alternative routes, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, but the nuance, of course, is that because, like Sam said earlier, you know, if you, if you make something more, efficient, you get more of that thing. And that's not a paradox. That's just an obvious fact, right? So the Jones paradox comes from the, f- the failure to, to optimize for the right thing, right? As in like, when you make it more efficient in the case of like the classic Jevons paradox example, when you're making it more efficient to, to move traffic, right? With the goal of speeding traffic up, right? then that doesn't happen. But if the goal is to make it so that more people can get where they're trying to go on the same time scale, you do get that actually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a, that's a cautionary it's, tale it, yeah, of making sure more, you understand what you're optimizing for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More people can get there in the same amount of time, but each person will not have a faster commute. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. So it's so, like if you want- yeah, The congestion want, is just as bad as it was. So you couldn't solve the congestion problem by adding more, right? Yeah. And you might have added a parking problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Probably, uh, yeah. yeah. So it's like if you, if you want to make it so that commutes are faster, then maybe go for buses, right? Because mm-hmm. then you're optimizing for getting each person there as quickly as possible. And reducing the number of cars involved. Yeah, which is reducing the number of cars. Then you don't have to do a big like construction project and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So so when it comes to this um, this idea of, of optimization, this is something we found in Levelhead as well, where – there was a time in early in Levelhead's development where 
I was pretty obsessive about optimization because people kept making levels that would run at like five frames per second. Mm-hmm. Um, and we added in some extra things where like if on their machine, the frame rate of the level dropped too low, then they wouldn't be allowed to, to publish it, you know? And people would write in feedback tickets saying like, oh yeah, I put a whole bunch of this one kind of an item into my level and the, the frame rate was really bad. Can you optimize like that item, right? And I'd be like, sure. And so if I got that item to be twice as performant, then they would just add twice as many of it, Yep. right? Right up until the point where the frame rate got just to the just to that lowest level. And so what I what I realized was like, I can't make the game have a better frame rate. No, you know not, what I mean? not when players are in control of it. Certainly not. I can, I, all I can do is make it so that people can put more stuff in their levels. But the frame rate is just going to be as low as possible. That's what yes. it's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to Crashlands 2 stuff, um, you know, we got to kind of think in the same terms, which is like, if the game is running at 60 FPS on on mobile, basically, basically like to me, like that's kind of like my target is is if it, if it's Hovering around 60 FPS on a device that's a few years old, then like newer devices, it'll run better. Older devices, it may get down to like 40 FPS or even 30, but that's still okay on mobile. Um, and if it starts to drop below that, then then that starts to be a, a bad gameplay experience. And so, uh, so all we got to do is every now and then we just do some profiling and we just see like, okay, based on what it is that we've put into the game at this point, yeah, um, are there certain things that are consuming a lot more system resources than we would like, or, you know, are they sort of disproportionately consuming more than their share? And if so, then we can look at those to optimize them. But with the understanding that, you know, if we optimize them to, let's say we optimize them to the point where now we're running at 120 frames per second, right? So we, we just, we just double the performance of the game. The game's running great. Within a month, it'll be back down to 60 because, <laughs> We'll just pack more stuff into the game. That's just the nature of the, the Jevons paradox, right? Yeah. Well, but um, that's I think it's actually the, the core point about about optimization is optimization isn't the point, right? Correct. Because that's the only reason you run into a Jevons paradox is because you're focused on the wrong goal, right? Because that you're optimizing something for the purpose of something else, right? Mm-hmm. So if you like go back to this example of these level-head players just like fucking feeling a level with stuff, right? I think it was Springs. That was one of the first Springs ones. really fucked with things, yeah. Yep. So if that's the kind of like player experience you want to enable, right, mm-hmm. then you need to optimize that so that it can happen. If it's not, if you don't care about that or don't want that to be something that players do, then you don't need to optimize that, right? In fact, and I think it's the same, not. and you shouldn't actually because you need it to not happen, right? Mm-hmm. You need to find ways to prevent it. And I think with with like crushes, it's the same. Crushes too, it's the same deal, right? Which is, yeah, you can always optimize stuff to improve it, but but we have, and, and since we're not doing you know level head where players make their own stuff, it's we have the most powerful level of all that we get to pull, which is the design lever, right? Because in level head, players got to design stuff, so they just get to like just fuck with things as much as they want, right? And they get they get to work outside of the constraints and the limitations of what we're providing. But in Crashlands 2, if we design something and we just and we can't get it to perform or it just doesn't perform well if it knocks the, the frame rate down, right? Then we have two solutions. One is we try to find a way to optimize it so that we can have that exactly as is. Or we can say, does it have to be this way? Right? Can we can we do something else? Right. So do we need to be able to have 20 creatures on screen fighting each other at the same time, right? 
because uh, if we do, then yeah, we have to figure out how to optimize that mm-hmm. to make that work. But if if we cannot have to do that, then now that's an optimization we don't have to figure out and do. So, and and just I mean, all of game design, actually, just all of technical anything, it's the same deal with with like building a website or anything, right? Where. As an example, I'm working on a piece of web tech and I have a list of 900 things, right, to, to show the user, right? Mm-hmm. And it just, whatever, it's the web. Like that shit's optimized really well over 40 fucking years, right? So like, it just spits it out. It's fine, right? But I was like, oh, because part of what has to happen is there's a transition where you like check things, right? And then the things mm-hmm. that you check need to get kind of sort themselves to the top. Uh, so I want that to be animated, you know, so you can see it happen. So it's not confusing. Um, but if I animate it, then every time you check a box, it takes like a second to, to resort because the calculation across 900 items to figure out where everything has to go and then animate it smoothly. Right. is so fucking expensive. Right. Mm-hmm. So two solutions there. One is figure out how to f- make that animation just really fucking optimize, right? Or say, okay, I won't animate this then, right? Yep. So go for the latter. That was the better move in that in that scenario, right? And, and all of these are basically making those choices. And, and there, are other, there are other things I could have done too of like, can I find a way to only display nine at a time or whatever mm-hmm. instead of 900, right? Yeah. Um, and Paging. Right. Yeah, do like paging or do something else, right? Or do like some kind, of, some kind of lazy loading where if it's off screen, it evaporates and I just like pad it with space or something, right? And so everything that we're doing all the time is trying to find ways to make the design we want happen. But given the reality and the constraints of the systems we're working in and our knowledge and skills, right? But our time constraints also, right? Mm-hmm. Then we always have to ask this question of what are we trying, what experience are we trying to enable? And how do we get that or close to that um, in a time efficient way on the development side? Right. Yeah. I think there's, there's very few development games. actually optimization is the place where we actually are spending all of our yes. time, not optimization of the product. Right. Yeah. I think there's, there's very few games that are uh, optimization focused in a way that you can, that you can tell. And remember that is where, where the point is, um, from a player standpoint, the point is experiencing a whole lot of something, right? I think two games recently that that fall in this category, and this is where this is where I think being extremely good at engineering on the optimization side can be a thing that you use as a design point for a game, right? Yeah, because otherwise fact, you literally couldn't do it, right? Like you can't just, do certain things. So, like yeah. they are billions is a very good example of this. I don't know how they draw so many fucking zombies on screen at a time, for example. In or that yeah. game. Rim World, Rim World, uh, Rim World manages this actually pretty well. And then uh, more recently, I played Vampire Survivors, which is basically just a bullet hell sort of thing. But the sheer amount of things on the screen, never never mind the fact that each one is like a little dumb pixelated monster that's hardly moving and just kind of looping a silly animation and doesn't really have a lot going on. But it's like the the computational expense of drawing that many things is just... In handling interactions and, and collisions, yeah, well, or, or like a game that has foliage, you know, right? Yep. Both to and if it's if it's foliage that like reacts to stuff in the environment, especially, but even just foliage that like has proper mm-hmm. shadows, because you know it's like if you if you're like playing most games that have foliage, you just walk right through it. It's not actually there, right? Oh yeah, and. Yeah. It's extremely rare to have something where you actually like can see it move because something happens. Somebody, I don't can't think, can't even think of an example. But even like having good shadows, mm-hmm. extremely rare, right? Because if you want foliage, then you you ha- now you have an engineering optimization problem, right? 
And you have to decide, okay, well, does that mean it's not interactive, right? Does that mean we have bad shadows? Does that mean the whole space is dark so we don't have to deal with shadows? You know? Does that like, mean our production is devoting 10% of its budget to foliage tech? You know? Yeah. Or is if in the case of like, we are billions, mm-hmm. like literally like the whole point of the game was like- Zombie horde. Zombie horde, right? And so billions that, of zombies. <laughs> so yeah, so definitely like they spent 80% probably of all of their design and engineering time- trying to figure out how to make that possible from mm-hmm. all sides of the problem, right? Like, yeah. how do you, how does it get drunk? Cause like, cause that means they're using, like they'll have to be using weird as fuck techniques to do this. Right. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. I don't even, I can't even imagine. Yeah, Cause games are already <laughs> smoke and mirrors, you know, where like this thing that you're looking at isn't really there, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it's all just like tricks to hide stuff and to, and to try to draw your eye. To, it's like doing magic tricks constantly. And in those kinds of contexts, they'll be doing weird stuff like having a, a shader, which is basically a way that you like, after the computer does stuff, you just kind of post-process what's on the screen and convert it to something else, right? Where you can basically make a shader that just like, if you're really fucking clever, that just turns one zombie into 10, you know, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's the kind of stuff that people have to do to make these things happen. Um, so yeah, but it's all just, so yeah, but if you want that to be your thing, like that's what you're choosing. So if you choose like, I want to have a thousand z- things on screen at once, you have opted into a complicated engineering yes. problem like that's what you're solving if like in our case we're talking about Crashlands 2 and we're trying to have certain kinds of experiences that are mostly about you interacting with a world that feels alive and feels like it's responding to you right the, the operative concept there is feels like you know like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to actually be responsive to what you're doing it has to feel like it is right and so right. there's cheap so ways to get that there's cheap ways to do that to get yeah, because you can have a creature that just has kind of some random behaviors, but if they're designed and tweaked in the right way, it can feel like it's responding to things, even if it's not. Because human brains will force patterns onto things. That's what they're that's what they're good at. They'll they'll pull patterns out of noise that aren't even there. And yeah, so, we've seen this already with uh, playtests and stuff, where the the big thing that we managed to hit, which I'm just so excited about, is the the sense of the world having that ecology feel to it, where uh, creatures which are currently, as far as how their behavior is determined and stuff, um, they do use a couple of little inputs to figure out kind of what to do, but it's very random. Um, yeah, because AI you, is so fucking expensive. Right? Yeah, so most of it's just random stuff, but uh, players will naturally build up mental models and stories about what's happening with the different creatures by watching these essentially random behaviors uh, play out, right? Um, and so you end up getting the sense that that creature is sort of stalking you or keep their eye on you or whatever, um, or that that one is, is happy after it, you know, ate a tree or something like that. Uh, when in reality, it's just happened to be two random events put next to each other. And then, then you spin a story out. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you start to reinforce that pattern every time you see it in your own brain. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think another example of like re- using the reality of human psychology to optimize, right. <laughs> Instead of as a yes. engineering side. So in, uh, in level head, we wanted to let you basically play random levels out of the pool of player-made levels, right? Um, the problem is for anybody who's ever worked with a database that the concept of random doesn't exist, right? It's not, it's not a real thing. And if you want to efficiently, randomly pull stuff out of a database, that's it's not possible, right? Uh, it's just that you can only ever pretend in some way. And the more random it is, the higher cost the way that you, the thing they have to do to, to pretend mm-hmm. that it is, is going to be. And what we ended up doing is is we just sorted levels by their random identifier, right? Which is just like some some you know, alphabetic characters, right? 
which basically puts them into a random order, but it's the same order every time, right? And so then we just like do a few requests, like to go grab some levels, right? Where we just choose a different point in that sorted list, right? So that there's no relationship between how they're, they are relative to each other, but we just pull some random things out and we'll tweak some of the parameters that we use to like filter so that we just get a slightly different set, you know? Mm-hmm. And then we'll like, sometimes we'll reverse it, you know, just to, mm-hmm. and we'll, so like we'll grab things from a few different points and like reverse a couple of them and then like interleave them with each other or whatever. And then we just lean on the fact that there are way more levels that a single player can play, mm-hmm. right? So that if you just start at random points in the list and grab a handful of levels, yeah. You're probably not going to play the same level twice, and if you do, it won't be that often, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's kind of like it's kind of like it's like a shuffle feature on a on a, a song playing app, you know, like iTunes yeah. or Spotify or whatever. Is it's again it's pseudo random, right? And they don't they don't actually care if you hear the same song. Like what they actually do is they try to make it so that you don't hear the same song within like you know five well, songs. Yeah, because you as a person are not coming to the music service or to level head or saying i need true randomness yeah. like what i'm seeking like think is, that's is, what you want yeah. is deep deeply felt chaos so that's yeah. what i want and it's like, but no, what no, you no, actually you want, want is just to feel like you yeah you, you want a variety you want to feel like you're not seeing the same thing twice that's, that's yeah. what you're yeah. actually well, I was say, people do say that people do say i want true randomness and yeah. to them true randomness means i never experience the same thing twice in a row which is not random that's that's a pattern yeah. right like that's coming in and saying i want a reinforced pattern yeah. <laughs> uh, or or even not even twice in a row just i never want to experience the same thing again mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. uh, if it was totally random, then it would be possible for you to get the same level like four times in a row. That's true. Depending on the number of levels. But Statistically yeah. improbable, but yeah. still possible. But technically you know? possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so so that's a lot of what we do in the games then as far as the optimization goes is, is instead of spending a bunch of time, say like in Crash Dance 2, like Sam said, developing a ton of, of AI to try to make uh, like actual behaviors in the world that have like a lot of intent behind them. You create a, a, a sort of a constellation of random behaviors that a thing has. And as those random behaviors occur in certain orders or in certain patterns, then yeah, you, you have your God of the gaps. Like the, the player's mm-hmm. mind just fills in the intent, the intent uh, behind it. And so, you know, you can kind of do that with, with all Most kinds things. of things. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and that's, that's even stuff like, um, when we have when we have creatures that are responding to things in the world, um, they aren't they aren't scanning the world every frame and evaluating what's around them every frame to decide what to do next. Which would they be the most like, reactive, right? Technically, yeah, that'd be, that'd be the most reactive. But actually, that's that's not even believable. Like nothing reacts instantly to stuff that's happening around it. There's a moment of like, what's well, happening? Like there's a, there's a moment of thought or, or processing, and so so. Just put it on like a, a half second or a one second interval, you know, where it's like, oh, maybe like once per second, the creatures will kind of check what's around them and be like, is this something I should try to eat? Is this scary? Do you I know, care should I try it? to run away? And then, and then by even like randomizing that interval a bit. So sometimes they'll check in like a half second, sometimes they'll check in a second and a half, you know. Um, and depending on all that stuff, then you kind of get this sort of organic feeling to things where, um, you know, maybe sometimes you'll be able to like quickly run past a creature and you happen to squeeze through that, that interval. Right. And you just think to yourself like, oh man, this one didn't notice me, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> which is 
technically true. Like it, it didn't notice you, but it's not that you did a better job sneaking or that that creature is particularly dumb, but those are the things that your brain will kind of fill in. Yeah. Uh, it's just that you just threaded an invisible timer uh, on accident, right? And so so that those are the kinds of things where we can optimize for performance, but then also use those optimizations to sort of bring in uh, new gameplay experiences that mm-hmm. are closer to what we want anyways. Yeah, and that's always like, the goal is to, is to marry those two things together really yeah. well so that so that the design fully takes into account the both the human psychology of the experience that we're trying to create and like what it means like what it means for a person to experience that and the technical limitations of the system in which we're operating right is how do we how do we come up with designs that actually just embrace all of those things and pull mm-hmm. it all together into one solution that isn't like oh no like we, we can only have a this bad AI that like we hate and we feel like it sucks because we couldn't find a way to optimize it. Yeah. Whereas instead it's like, Oh, isn't it cool that we can, we can basically give things like slow polling coupled with random behaviors that are sort of biased towards things. Right. But not Mm -hmm. just like dictated by, right. And then end up with stuff that's just unpredictable enough that players fill in their own stories for how things work. Cause I mean, even like think about like if you have a pet, you know, Yep. Like, you know that you know that pet's behavior pretty well. Like, you know what, what it's into, right? But at any given moment, if you look at it and it does something, why the fuck did it do that? You have no <laughs> idea, you know? Like, absolutely no idea. You know, you're like, your cat just suddenly sprints off and, like, jumps up on something and starts punching it, right? Just all of a sudden out of nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. Dog suddenly wakes up and, like, go <laughs> does, does something, right? Or just, like, or my cat will just sometimes just, like, get up on something high and just stare into my eyeballs, right? <laughs> Like, why? Why is it doing and the, that? Yeah, and the know. thing is, you know that that's a thing that the, the cat does sometimes. Like that's a yeah. that's a behavior that you have in your brain of like, that's I know that that's thing. one I know that that's one of its random roles of yep. of states to enter, right? Random staring state. But you don't you don't know what leads it to do that at any given point in time. Yeah. Well that's where right. the mixing it with context is where all the storytelling happens, right? It's like mm-hmm. you can take the same behavior. And you just randomly splattered into a bunch of different contexts. And it's like, yeah, your cat just staring at you, you know, while you're sitting down doing some writing feels a certain way. Your cat staring at you while you're cooking something feels a completely different way. Your cat coming and staring at you while you're on the toilet feels a completely different way, right? And it's like (laughs) every single one of those could actually have the exact same cat behavior, which is the cat's just like, I'm going to look at this person. That might be it. There's no contextual clues, Mm -hmm. maybe. Who knows? Um, But in your mind, you might be like, oh, oh, they want some food now. Because they're looking at me while I'm making food. And so that marriage of randomness and context is what creates these emergent stories. Yeah. Uh, and they may or may not be true, right? Um, yep. But it doesn't matter. And it, and, yeah. And it's the same thing too. Where it's like where you'll, if you're like, if you're watching a squirrel outside running around, you know, like it'll just suddenly stop and like stand there for a second. The fuck mm-hmm. is it doing? You know, right? like, oh, it, it sensed me. No, probably yeah, not. It's like, you know? it must, it must be like hearing, which might be true. Who knows? Right. And then it, and then it kind of runs off in seemingly random direction and starts digging, you know? As far as you can tell from the outside, like, it's just doing weird random stuff. But you start to put a story together where it's, like, mm-hmm. listening for predators that it, like, runs off and it's, like, looking for a hole to put a mm-hmm. nun later or find one that it had previously, right? And maybe every once in a while you see it pull a nut out of the ground, right? So, like, mm-hmm. so there are, like, things happen that reinforce these these models on top of what otherwise, as far as all the evidence you have, like, in the moment, is just random behavior. Like, there's mm-hmm. just... There's no way to explain any given thing. It's just every once in a while, something that happens is coupled with some other thing to which you could apply a story 
that feels like it makes sense, right? And now yeah. that just well, like, it's not random, but it's it's biased. Yeah. Right? Yes. Uh, and and what exactly is going to happen next is sort of like random among a selection of biased actions. Yeah, right? based on the context, right? So like, based on the so, context. Yeah, yeah. So like you know, if a cat appears, you're like, okay, well, it's really likely that if that squirrel notices. Like, well, no, it does. But if it notices, probably it's going to go right up a tree. Right? But it might not, though. But it might not. It might run somewhere else. It might just stand there. And the cat and the squirrel might play with each other. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> or the squirrel might attack the cat. You know? Like, it's rabies. true. Yeah. Yeah. There's just... The world is chaos. chaos. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, you need... The, it's, the, it's the interactivity plus the randomness. Plus things that at least make... They're never so far outside of, like, you know, normal, right? No, the squirrel doesn't... With that, that it doesn't make sense. Taking yeah. anthropological notes on you or something. It doesn't you know, like, shoot the cat, you know, like that yeah. doesn't happen, right? But yeah. almost anything That's, else does within like the realm of what a squirrel could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when it comes to sort of like the the ambitious scope of Crashlands 2, you know, our, our goal with any given thing in the game is to kind of optimize toward that vibe where it's like stuff in the world feels like it has intent and feels like it has these kind of reactive behaviors based on what's going on around it because they do. But at the same time, uh, the the number of behaviors that things have is is actually not that large. Mm-hmm. It's just that uh, they're reactive enough to what's going on around them, and they're still random enough that your brain can kind of fill in the gaps. And so we can we can make a game that feels like it has a, a huge, uh, expansive interactive ecosystem that is far deeper than than the code. Sort of like it's far deeper than the code says it is. But then there's that kind of interesting. Side note, which is like, if when you're walking around the world, if you see all these different things interacting in all these different ways, um, in in ways that feel like they have intentionality, in the same way as like when you're walking through the woods and you see a, a critter in the real life doing something, right? Um, then it doesn't really matter that the code didn't exactly specify this situation, nope. right? Uh, because you still got the situation; mm-hmm. it's still happening, right? Uh, and so that's that's the kind of thing that we're we're using to kind of bridge the gap of making sure that the game is as big as we want it to be is like all these little kinds of tricks. Yeah, but it, I mean, I think part of it too is that this is also the way that makes sense for things to work, right? Because that is what your actual experience out in the world is. You don't think of it that way because you think of it all because like you've you know you're immersed in it. You think of it as making sense. But if you actually sit down and just like observe, right, and just just observe stuff. It is basically random. Like you're you're just retconning constantly everything that happens around you, right? To apply like a reason and a pattern and so yeah, on, right? This happened because of this and then that yeah. happened because of that. And you know, if if that were it's kinda of reminds me of our chaos conversation from a long time ago, right? But like if that were actually true that like Everything just had a specific one-to-one causality to it. Yeah, so then then you would always be able to predict what was going to happen next, right? Uh, But you can't. You you can guess based on the context, um, but you know there's there's no there's no definite answer to what you're going to do next today. What you know your dog is going to do next. What your kid is going to do next. Everybody's just acting on these kind of like biases based on context, and so. Yeah, so you can make some really dynamic, interesting, um, you know, programmed ecosystems that actually have very little code going on, but that still create that kind of a a feeling. So yeah, well, I would uh, actually also argue that you can't create that feeling with highly deterministic code. That's true. 
because nothing's are too specific. Take, yeah, because to, too predictable. To, yeah, well, yes, because to capture to capture something that then looks random but is actually just like fully deterministic, right, is extremely difficult to do, and so it's just easier to let it be actually random to match, you know, the reality of what it looks like it is. Yeah. So always lean on randomness first mm-hmm. and o- only, only go into specifics of coding things up if, if randomness doesn't get you there, which it, it will most of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa Costa for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.